I'm grateful to all of you for the opportunity to speak to each of you this morning. Today, I deliver the same message that I request to deliver to the congregations across America, whether by Zoom or in person, a message which describes God's heart now, His heart today for the Jews and the nation of Israel, God's heart for His people, Jews and Israel, even 2,000 years after Messiah came, lived, died, and was raised from the dead. This ministry is my labor of love, free to every congregation across America, regardless of denominational distinctions. A message to all mainline churches in order that they may no longer believe in replacement theology, and in order that you as Christians across America have the same high regard for all Jews which the Father has today for them, in spite of the fact that many Jews today are what Paul says in Romans eleven twenty eight, enemies of the gospel. God still loves them in 2023. This talk originated from a request of Jeannie DeBeau from St. Luke's Methodist right over there on Highland where Marion and I had gone every eight weeks or so to feed the homeless. Jeannie had asked me how Messianic worship differed from her worship in the Methodist church. The worship of Messianic synagogue is basically an expression of the first century congregation you find in the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts. Read it. In the book of Acts, you recall that at first the church was entirely Jewish. It began as a sect of Judaism. They worshiped on the Sabbath day, Saturday. They worshiped Jesus, their Jewish rabbi, whose name was in Hebrew is Yeshua. And they kept the Jewish feasts, including Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, Hanukkah, which is the Feast of Dedication, and Purim, the Feast of Lots. Eventually, the Apostle Paul began to preach to Gentiles. And they were added to the assembly of Jewish believers in Messiah. And Gentiles and Jews worshiped together in the synagogues. Now, I am a Gentile who believes in Messiah. My wife, Marion, is Jewish, and she believes in Messiah. Basically, in a Messianic synagogue, the Jewish believer can worship God and practice his Messianic-centered faith in a context that respects both Jewish life and tradition. Think about it. Messiah does not ask any one of us to stop being male or female, black or white, Jew or Gentile, when we come to believe in Him. Non-Jewish believers like me stand for Israel. We embrace the Jewish roots of our new covenant, and we love the Jewish people in a Messianic synagogue. Messianics seek to build bridges between Christian churches and the Jewish people. They foster a love for Israel. They repudiate all forms of anti-Semitism. And they seek to educate churches about the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. Now, let us transition our attention to the Hebrew Scriptures. Because I can stand up here and talk all I want, but let's get to the Bible. 
Let's notice, first of all, from the Hebrew Scriptures that God made at least five separate covenants, four of which were made with the Jewish people. In Genesis chapter 9 is God's covenant to Noah, and in fact to every living thing, even to your puppy dogs and your cattle, that God would never destroy the earth again with a flood. This covenant with Noah is the only covenant that God made with everyone. Then in Genesis 12, God establishes His covenant with Abraham through His eventual son Isaac. A great nation would be established, and they would be placed in their land and bless all nations through, Israel, through Abraham's seed, Messiah. Included in this covenant with Abraham is God's promise that still remains true today to bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse her. All these promises to Abraham have been fulfilled, and God still promises to bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse her. Then in Exodus chapter 20, God establishes His Mosaic covenant on Mount Sinai with the Israelites after having saved them from Egyptian slavery. Then in 2 Samuel 7, one you might not know about, because of King David's earnest desire to build for God an eternal place of worship, a temple to replace the tent-like structure, the tabernacle, God was so impressed with that that He made a covenant with David and promised that He would establish an eternal dynasty of kings through David's descendants. That's the Davidic covenant. The last king of that dynasty to rule will be Messiah a son of David. And then there is the new covenant that we find out about in Jeremiah 31, originally made with the people of Israel, according to Jeremiah 31, 31, and also Hebrews 8, verse 8. Gentile believers like me are grafted into this covenant. We're grafted in. We're benefited, benefited by that covenant by being grafted in. How it differed from the Mosaic Covenant is that God would write His laws upon the heart of man, giving man a greater zest to keep the laws of God. Now, we are not saved on the basis of law. That's, that's completely true. But what this covenant did is, uh, this new covenant, it put the heart, the Holy Spirit within us and gave the believer a, a promoted the believer to want God's lordship over his life, to assist him with the sanctification process, which we all know is a lifelong process. Up to that time in the Hebrew Scriptures, the, only, the Holy Spirit only resided in certain select individuals. So then God establishes at least five covenants in the Hebrew Scriptures. All except for the Noahic covenant were given in to the people of Israel. That's the first thing we learn. Also from the Hebrew Scriptures, in Leviticus 23, God appointed the Sabbath day and seven festivals for the people of Israel to observe on certain days of the year. We just observed Passover the other day. Four of these occur in the spring and three occur in the fall. These are all described in the Hebrew Scriptures as God's Moedim, His appointed days, His appointed holy days, and the Bible calls them a lasting ordinance for generations to come, Leviticus 23, 31, which means to the Jewish people, they are permanent. They're a lasting ordinance for generations to come. There's no end to that. 
So that is why in the New Testament, you find Jesus, the Jewish rabbi and Messiah. You find the earlier believers in Messiah that were Jews. You find in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul keeping these feasts of Passover and Shabbat or Sabbath day and such. Gentile believers were not given these feasts, and therefore they're not required to keep them. However, all these feasts are a depiction of our Lord. The first four have been fulfilled already in Messiah, and the last three are yet to be fulfilled in Messiah. Now, the fact that God gave these feasts to the Jewish people of Israel as a lasting ordinance for generations to come tells me that God is not done with the Jewish people. He hasn't cast them off. He hasn't said, you know, forget it. They messed up. They didn't receive the Messiah. I'm done with them. He didn't do that. He gave them to them as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. He has not abandoned his people. He expects them to keep these feasts until the end of time. Yeshua and his disciples were Torah observant Jews who truly loved their Jewish heritage and did not seek to set it aside. In addition to in the Hebrew Scriptures, we find several prophecies, all that have reference to the Jewish people. And this is the best part of the message. And some of these prophecies are yet to be fulfilled. These prophecies have been in your Bible 1,500 years before the New Testament even came about. So they've been in there 3,000 years or more. Let me read a couple of them to you. In Ezekiel 37, this is the story of the dead bones. I know you know that story. Ezekiel, it's the valley of the dry bones. Ezekiel 37, verse 4 and 5. All of these passages are speaking about the Jewish nation. Ezekiel 37, verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am your Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. This is a prophecy of scripture that we have seen in our very day that's being fulfilled. Jews by the millions are restored, are being restored to their land. They're making Aliyah back to Israel. That's prophecy of scripture being fulfilled right there. I just read but then in this chapter, there's something that is yet to be fulfilled that he speaks of in verse 22. He says, I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountain of Israel. There will be one king over them, and they will never again be two nations. Remember the north and south kingdom? They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and their vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. Now listen to this. My servant David, of course this is talking about Jesus, but he says, my servant David will be their king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, Christ that is. 
They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land that I gave my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived, they and their children and their children's children, and will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then all the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. In Isaiah chapter 11, it talks about when the Lord returns again, how things will be changed. And in verse 4b, he says, He, that is Christ, will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his, in his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like a the ox. The infant will play near the hole of a cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now listen to this. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him. And his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant of Jews that is left of his people in Assyria, in Lower Egypt, in Upper Egypt. And he mentions a few other places. Now, I haven't seen any children stick their hand into a den of cobras yet. But it will happen. This prophecy is yet to happen. Another prophecy yet to happen is that pertains to the Jewish people is in Zechariah. And this is my favorite one. In Zechariah chapter 12, listen to this. I marked these passages so I can find them quickly. So Zechariah 12, this is the word of the Lord concerning America? No. Concerning Germany? No. Concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out His heavens who lays the foundation of the earth, who forms the spirit of man within him, declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. But on that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all nations. All who try to move her will injure themselves." Verse 9, on that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. And yet I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Now notice this. This is about Israel. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Who do you think that's talking about? It's talking about them looking upon the Messiah whom they have pierced. And mourn for him as one mourns an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves a firstborn child. So this passage is about a future time, of course, when Israel and his enemies will be defeated. And when many Jews will cry out, Baruch haba, Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Many Jews, it says here, will come to know their Messiah, their Savior. One last example also that comes from Zechariah is in Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah 8, this is what the Lord says, verse 3. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then, Israel, then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Verse 22, this is really good. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat Him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations. So you've got Hondurans and you've got Americans and Koreans and Germans. Ten men from every nation will seek Take the hem, or take the talit, the hem of the Jew. Will they take hold of the hem of the Jew and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. God would never make a prophecy of Scripture that he didn't intend to fulfill one day. But the fact is God has great plans for Israel, future plans for his chosen people. So from the Hebrew Scriptures then, we find four covenants. We find the Sabbath day and seven appointed feasts. And several future prophecies all have reference to the Jewish people. They all tell me that God is not done with the Jewish people. Now as I've already said, when you look at the book of Acts, when you really read it, you'll find that the early church of the first century was basically an expression of a messianic synagogue. They worshiped in the synagogue, their rabbi, Yeshua, on Saturday, and they kept the Jewish feasts. In fact, the church began on the Jewish feast day of Passover, or Shavuot, 50 days after Passover. Soon Gentiles began to be accepted, and a Spirit of God moved in power among them. And many came to faith. Jewish believers in Messiah and Gentile believers in Messiah worshiped together. And things continued rather well until about the middle of the second century when less Jews were being converted. And when Gentile believers began to do what Paul warned them not to do from Romans chapter 11. So now we're going to turn there because this is critical. This is Romans Paul reiterates, I ask you then, Romans 11, verse 1, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people for whom he foreknew. Verse 7, what then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so they, that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. Verse 11, here's this important part right here. Again I asked, listen to this, did they stumble as to fall beyond recovery? That's like saying, is it done, are they done with? Are we done with the Jews now? Are we ready to move on? Did they stumble before? Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Can it not be fixed? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. And if their transgression means riches for me, riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, 
How much greater riches will their fullness bring? In other words, he's anticipating their fullness. He says, you think that's bad? Wait till they come to faith. Then he says in verse 15, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Verse 17, If some of the branches were broken off, they were broken off because of their lack of faith. And you, that means you Gentiles, being a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, Here's his warning. Do not boast over those branches. Don't boast over those Jews. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You say then, branches were broken off that I could be grafted in. Granted, that's true, Paul says. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. For God did not spare the natural branches. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Now verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of this mystery, so that you may not become conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening. They didn't come to faith. Yes, we all understand that. In part, until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, until God has saved all the Gentiles He wants to save, Israel will experience a hardening of faith. And so all Israel will be saved, as is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now this is really good. As far as, this is the passage I talked about that I said that even though they're enemies of the gospel, God still loves them. Listen to this, verse uh, Romans eleven twenty eight. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his calls are irrevocable. In other words, his, his gifts to Abraham and his descendants, his call upon that nation, they're irrevocable promises. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now have become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Remember those dry bones? They'll come to faith. What precisely did the Gentiles do though? that the Apostle Paul warned them not to do. Let's see from this verse. We have already said it. You see, the sin Gentiles were guilty of, and Gentile Christians today are often guilty of, is what's referred to as replacement theology, where non-Jews like me believe that the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people. And that God has nothing much to do with them anymore because they, for the most part, don't believe in the Messiah. But what did we just read from the Scriptures? What did we read? And what did we read from the New Covenant as well? That God has great plans and prophecies to fulfill with the Jewish people. The eyes of most Jews today are unveiled. Yes, it's true. For our sakes, for our Gentile sakes, because God loves us too. But there will come a time when that veil will be lifted from their eyes... And they'll come into a full measure of faith in Messiah. We heard that they will cry out, Baruch Hababa, Shem Adonai. They'll look upon him whom they pierced. 
God will bring Jews to faith in Messiah. God will have mercy on all people because God loves all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. Let me repeat. I know I'm saying a lot about Jews here, but you know what? God loves Gentiles too. God loves you. God loves me. God loves us all. He has plans for all nations. But God has different roles for all of us to play. Think about it. Some of us are men. Some are women. Some are parents. Some are children, employers, employees, Jews, Gentiles. Even though we are all one in Messiah and nobody gets saved outside of the blood of Jesus and we're all one, we're still different. We're man. We're woman. We're black or white. We're an employer and a woman, a child, a, a husband. We still maintain our distinctiveness, and we have roles to play within that to fulfill God's plans. But for, for several hundred years, the church has believed the lie of a replacement theology and is responsible for over 1,900 years of atrocities against Jews. Only until recently have some churches begun to discover God's eternal plan for His Jewish people. That has always been in the Bible. Those of us who are Gentiles need to recognize that we as Gentile believers have been called to, by God to honor the Jewish people because the Jewish people brought us monotheism, belief in one God. The Jewish people for thousands of years have been the guardians, the custodians of the Hebrew Bible. They brought us the Scriptures. The Jewish people gave us the roots, the Hebrew roots to our faith. And through the line of the Jewish people, we have come to have our Savior, Messiah Yeshua, the Son of David. Let us as Gentile believers then rise up with respect and love for the Jewish people, since according to Ephesians 2 verse 11, we as Gentile disciples of Jesus owe our very spiritual existence to them. Let me close by reading a passage of a paper I wrote for Colson Fellows a few years back. A few years back, I wrote a paper about the four basic worldviews. You have naturalism, transcendentalism, postmodernism, and theism. And in the theism section of the paper, I wrote, I commented about God's basic story that is given in the Scriptures, which I discover to be true from Chuck Colson's book, How Now Shall We Live? Here's what I said. The Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are God's story to mankind. They represent how He wants us to understand the world from His perspective. Once again, we are not the center of the story. He is. We are part of the story, but the story is not ultimately about us. It's about Him. His story involves four parts. Creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. Considering the four parts of Scripture, creation addresses where this world came from and who we are in the world. The fall reveals to us that we are living in a world much different from the way it was originally created, that something went dreadfully wrong. Redemption is about how God, out of His love, provided a way for us to be returned to freedom and peace with Him, ourselves, and others. And finally, restoration discloses that this world will one day be renewed, restored, remade into the way that the created really intended it to be all along. So the Bible is more than just a collection of 66 separate books. It's a unified message that must be understood in its entirety as a narrative from beginning to end. It's God's story to mankind in a four-part drama. Since God is just and moral, He cannot allow the injustices that have gone on to all the people of every nation to go unpunished. 
The scriptures record a consistent theme that runs throughout its pages, pages, which involves the Jewish people of Israel that he made eternal covenants with and brought through their lineage the Redeemer. Toward the end of time, this same people will return to their land that they were promised to Israel, the land that will once again flourish numerically, agriculturally, and economically. We can all see that these things are happening now. Not only will they return to their land, but they will return to their God with hearts to receive the Messiah, which will usher in the final act of God's drama, restoration. A restoration of His people, His land, a restoration of the entire world will occur. The Messiah will bring an era of peace that we read about from Isaiah 11 that will affect every nation, tribe, and tongue, and all people will benefit from this restoration. Wrongs will be made right. Evil will be appropriately addressed, and those who have perpetuated harmful, illegal, and immoral actions against others will, be account, will have to account for their deeds. The entire world, world will be restored into the beauty it once had before God turned away from us, or before man turned away from us, in, uh, God in the garden. This is the end of the reading of my paper on worldview. But let me close with one final statement. We here today... We here as Americans today, we are witnesses. What are we witnesses to? We are witnesses to how God in 1948, after 2,000 years or more, established Israel as a nation just over 70-some years ago, foretold about in Isaiah 66. We're witnesses to that. We're also witnesses to Jews returning to their homeland, nearly 6 billion now that we read about from Ezekiel 37, the rising of the dead bones. We are witnesses to how the land of Israel is once again blossoming with wine and fruit. and They're even turning the Dead Sea into drinking water. It's amazing what they're doing over there. That Isaiah 27 speaks of how the land is blossoming. We are witnesses to how God is raising up or how nations are being raised up against Israel to do them harm that Zechariah 12 speaks of. Let us not become haughty, like Paul said from Romans 11, and arrogant thinking that God loves us Christians, but not those Jews. Ah, not them Jews. They had their chance. Don't do that. Don't do that. God's heart is for his people. It's not up to me to decide who God has had made a covenant with. God has the right to do what he wants. That doesn't mean he doesn't love me anymore or less or whatever. But God chose them for a reason. He has a purpose for them. So don't think that he loves us now and your Jews had their chance. Forget them. Let us remember from the inspired Apostle Paul, that we as Gentile believers in Messiah are grafted in benefactors to all the promises of God to Israel. And let us remember that God still blesses those who bless Israel and curses those who curse her. Thank you.